This is an ABC podcast. The Victorian Parliament commences its 2023 sitting year with reforms to bail laws high on the agenda. This follows the scathing findings of a coroner into the death in custody of a First Nations woman. The complete and unmitigated disaster of the 2018 changes to the Bail Act is most obviously inflicted on the accused who are incarcerated, often for short periods and for unproven offending of a type that often ought not result in imprisonment, even if proven. Premier Dan Andrews says he's committed to overhauling the state's bail laws. Nothing I say can take away the pain that those who love Veronica Nelson carry with them every day. What we can do and what we must do is make the necessary change in statute and in practice to ensure that it doesn't happen again. Damien Carrick with you and a warning. With the permission of the family, the law report is using both the name and the voice of a First Nations woman who has died. All the recommendations in the world from any coroner can come down, but unless we make real changes to the, to the system and, and to the people that are running those systems how, and, and changes people's mentalities, how are we meant to change it, how it comes out to Aboriginal people? Shantae Lyons is cousin to Veronica Nelson, who was denied bail after being arrested on suspicion of shoplifting. The coroner said Veronica Nelson's treatment was inhumane and her death in custody preventable. To discuss this, what I must warn is a confronting and tragic case. I'm joined by Barrister Michael Stanton. He appeared as counsel for the Law and Advocacy Centre for Women at the inquest. He's also president of Liberty Victoria. I'm also joined by Sarah Schwartz, a lawyer with the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service. She represented Uncle Percy Lovett, Veronica Nelson's life partner at the inquest. Veronica Nelson, she was a strong Gundajmara, Jajawarang, Wiradjuri and Yorta Yorta woman. Um, she's described by her family in loving terms as being connected to her culture, close to family and community. She's described as someone who would always help people if someone needed help on the streets or someone was being hard done by. She'd give them a place to stay, give them whatever she could. Um, she was described as someone who's intelligent, who connected her partner, Uncle Percy Lovett, to his culture, taught him a lot. She was a well-loved and well-respected member of the Fitzroy community. Why did she find herself in custody on the 30th of December 2019. So there are really three reasons why Veronica was in custody on the 30th of December. What's important to remember is that Veronica was on, had only ever been charged with shoplifting related offences before that date. She was picked up while she was walking in the city with her brother, minding her own business, by an off-duty police officer who said that he recognised her. Um, we argued in the inquest that police target Aboriginal people, we know that Aboriginal people are more likely to be arrested, and that this arrest was the result of that. Um, she was then taken to Melbourne um, West Police Station, where she was denied police bail because she fell under Victoria's harsh bail laws. She was required to meet this reverse onus test. Which we'll talk about in a moment. Yes. And then that day she was taken to Melbourne Magistrates Court. Um, her hearing didn't get on that night, so she was held in the cells alone of Melbourne Magistrates Court. And then 
She appeared in court the next day. She was meant to have a lawyer, but she ended up appearing unrepresented and ultimately she was denied bail in a bail hearing, which many people would have heard, in which she was not asked questions about her circumstances, her Aboriginality, her partner, Uncle Percy Lovett, and was in court with her. He said she looked unwell and he said no one came up and asked him any questions. Um, so in an incredibly short and sharp bail hearing, she was refused bail and sent to Dame Phyllis Frost Centre. That's a, a women's prison in Melbourne, and she was sent there pending a court hearing, which would be weeks away. Yes, exactly. She was sent there pending a court hearing in Shepparton um, to hear her t- the charges for which she was alleged to have committed, which were shoplifting-related offences. And about two days later, she's dead. What, what happened at Dame Phyllis Frost Centre? Uh, I guess... Overall, at Dame Phyllis Forest Centre, Veronica was subjected to cruelty upon cruelty and the coroner described her treatment there as being cruel and inhumane. She had a reception intake assessment in which she wasn't weighed, there was no physical examination of her and experts at the inquest said she should have been sent to hospital immediately. And Because of the poor medical care that she received, because of poor information sharing systems between correction staff and medical staff, she ended up passing away in her cell after having made calls for help at least 49 times. I feel sick in the stomach. Yep, you just got to wait for that maximum to kick in, okay? I feel sick. I'm spewing up. Yeah, that's going to keep happening for a bit, miss, but I'll let them know. So she was buzzing the intercom, pleading for help, begging for help, and was ultimately ignored by everyone in charge. When is the doctor going to see me? It's not an emergency. Stop asking. Do I see the doctor yet? No, I wouldn't go. What? She said in 10 minutes. Well, things don't always go to plan. Um, She was left in her cell, lying in her own vomit, incredibly cruel and degrading circumstances which no person should ever have to be in. I need help. I'm cramping. I'm cramping something shocking. Are you withdrawing? Yeah. My legs and my feet and my hands, and they can't come out. All right, have you um, tried to have some fluids, some water? Yes, yes. All right, I'll, I'll ring the nurse, okay? I need help. Okay, I'll ring the nurse. Badly, Miss Badly. Okay, I'm going to ring the nurse. She was withdrawing from heroin, and I think it was found in the autopsy that she had an undiagnosed gastrointestinal medical condition. What happened every time she buzzed for help and said, I'm not well, I need medical attention? Essentially, in various different forms, Veronica was ignored, and the coroner found that the responses to Veronica in custody were a result of stigma she faced because she was a drug user and because she was withdrawing. The sounds of Veronica's last pleading calls for help echoed around the courtroom, prompting me to ponder how the people who heard them and had the power to help her did not rush to her aid, send her to hospital or simply open the door of the cell. Her symptoms were dismissed by a lot of the medical staff as being that she was simply withdrawing, not in need of medical assistance, and there was no treatment of her as someone who was experiencing a medical issue, despite her vomiting and being incredibly unwell. We have to remember she passed away and she weighed 33 kilograms. That is a severe state of malnutrition. 
and the coroner ultimately found that her cause of death was that malnutrition that was contributed to by opiate withdrawal and that gastrointestinal illness. But most importantly, all that Veronica needed was to be transferred to hospital and if she had been transferred to hospital, she would have been given life-saving treatment, such as a drip, and she would have survived. That's all she required. Sarah Schwartz, you've highlighted the two fundamental issues here. Bail, what was she doing in custody in the first place? And two, the medical care or lack of that she received while in custody. Michael Stanton, uh, Barrister Michael Stanton, uh, President of Liberty Victoria, there are many important recommendations from uh, Coroner Simon McGregor. Probably the biggest is around the call for fundamental changes to the state's bail system. What are those laws around bail in Victoria that need urgent attention, as the coroner says, and why are they so strict in Victoria compared to other parts of the country? Ordinarily, a person has a presumption of bail. A person is entitled to be bailed pending the hearing or determination of the charges. And unfortunately, in Victoria, after the tragedy of the Burke Street incident, there was significant reforms to Victoria's Bail Act. Look, I I think it's important that listeners understand what that incident was and why it was such a a kind of a watershed in Victoria and why it led to this dramatic change. We're talking here about uh, James Gargasoulis, who on the 20th of January 2017 (sighs) drove into pedestrians along Burke Street and, and other parts of central Melbourne and he killed six people and he seriously injured 27 others. And at the time he was out on bail after he'd been involved in a high-speed police pursuit and he had a history of serious offences and there was a collective shock in this city about that day and that led the government to take drastic action. That's correct. And there's a famous maxim that hard cases make bad law and one can't understate how affecting that incident was for Victorians and the people affected. It should be remembered in relation to that matter that the decision to grant bail was made by a bail justice and not a court. So the matter didn't go to court. It wasn't a decision of a judicial officer to grant bail. And arguably, if all proper relevant facts were before the decision maker, then bail would have been refused on the basis that Mr Gargazoulis presented an unacceptable risk of engaging in a serious offence. And that's the way the bail system used to function, that uh, one, a person would be entitled to bail unless it was established by the state, the party that is seeking to remand someone exceptionally before hearing or trial, that that person is an unacceptable risk of flight, failing to appear, re-offending or interfering with witnesses. And uh, unfortunately, in that case, he was bailed by the bail justice, and that led to significant outcry. A significant outcry that led to very, very hard and strict laws around bail. What was the new test which was introduced in 2018 under the Victorian bail laws? Traditionally, there have been what's called reverse onus provisions in relation to bail. There's been the highest threshold, the most difficult threshold to meet for an applicant is exceptional circumstances. And traditionally, that's been reserved for the most serious criminal offences, 
murder, terrorism offences, very large-scale drug trafficking. There's also been a, a second reverse onus category, which used to be known as show cause, and there were some circumstances in which an applicant for bail had to show cause why their remand in custody was not justified. But after the Gargazoulis incident, there was a review, the bail review, by Justice Paul Coughlin, and he made some key recommendations, and that led to a very large expansion of the number of offences that are firstly in the exceptional circumstances category and also an expansion of what was then deemed to be the compelling reasons category, which wasn't a word recommended, it should be noted, by Justice Coughlin. He favoured an expression, a good reason or good cause why someone shouldn't be remanded in custody. So following 2018, there's a massive expansion in the number of offences to which this exceptional circumstances uh, test applies. And that includes low-level offences like possession of drugs for personal use, shoplifting and bail offences, not turning up, not fulfilling all the, the requirements of bail. The government response created what's known in the profession as the double uplift. And what that means is that if someone is charged with a Bail Act offence, such as failing to answer bail, and then commits an offence whilst on bail for that offence, they're placed into the most difficult category in relation to applications of bail. So, and that operated in this case uh, to see Miss Nelson facing the same threshold for bail as an alleged murderer or terrorist because of that double uplift. So five years down the road, what has this meant for Victoria. Uh, Sarah Schwartz, tell me what this has meant for people. It's been catastrophic um, in terms of the imprisonment rate in Victoria. We've seen just this huge jump in imprisonment rates and particularly in imprisonment rates for people who are on remand. And that's had the greatest impact on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and particularly Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women like Veronica. And sometimes over the last year, 80% of Aboriginal women in jail are on remand, which means they have not been found guilty of any offence. And the other thing to remember is that the changes to the Bail Act also affect children. So we currently see at present over half of all people in Victoria's prisons, and that includes children, are held on remand. That means they haven't been convicted, they're technically presumed innocent, and yet they're imprisoned. A lot of police don't understand that they have a discretion to grant bail, and so this also has a perverse impact on the amount of people that are held in police cells. So someone like Veronica, when she presented at Melbourne West Police Station, the police bail decision maker, they technically could have granted her bail, but the bail decision maker gave evidence at the inquest that he never grants bail. He can't remember a time that he has ever granted bail to someone who falls under the exceptional circumstances test. There was one figure that before the amendment to the Bail Act, 31% of the prison population was unsentenced. By 2021, which is two years ago now, that had increased to 43%. Tell me about some of your other clients or some of the other clients of your legal service. Yeah, um, we have one client who was accused of stealing a pair of socks. She was denied police bail and held in custody on remand. We have another client who was accused of possessing a small amount of cannabis. He was also held overnight in police custody. And we have 
clients who are children who've been charged with offences such as breaking windows in their residential care units and they're also held in police custody. And we know that for our clients, Aboriginal people are more likely to be targeted by the police, they're more likely to be refused bail. And we also know that because courts are so backlogged at the moment, there are more and more people than ever before who are on bail and so who fall under those double uplift, who might be captured by the double uplift provisions and the reverse onus test. We know that even one night in jail can hugely disrupt someone's life. It can lead to children being removed. It can lead to people losing their housing. It can lead to people losing their, their employment. And that has this huge flow and effects to communities and it affects the Aboriginal community in this huge way and they're really severely targeted by these bail laws. But it's also had a significant effect on other marginalised groups, including female offenders who are commonly charged with lower-level non-violent offences and find themselves captured or caught up by that double uplift. And it just wasn't the purpose of the review and the reforms, which was intended to address a specific incident in relation to violent offending that endanger community safety. But no one is suggesting for a moment that Veronica or many other women who are held in custody are any danger to community safety. So it's had a huge and perhaps unintended impact, although the potential impact was recognised by the legal community at the time. And Justice Coughlin himself was cognisant of the significant increase in the population on remand and the danger of these resources being used for low-level offending. I understand that one of the consequences of people being in remand is that they will say, okay, I may as well plead guilty and get out. Yes. I mean, sometimes it's the fastest way for a person to be released and be returned to their community, their families, potentially their job if they've managed to hold on to their job whilst they've been in prison. And so it's a huge pressure on people because if they're advised that if you plead guilty, properly advised, if you plead guilty to this offence to which you might have a defence, you'll be released immediately or very shortly. Whereas if you continue to contest the matter, you may be held in custody for months, if not years, then one can imagine the pressure that places on people to plead guilty to matters that they shouldn't be pleading guilty to. You know, there's a real pressure for people to plead guilty. Going back to the example of a person who's accused of stealing a pair of socks or um, possessing cannabis, if they've been held in police custody for one night or two nights, and then they front up before a magistrate and they receive proper advice from a lawyer, that lawyer will likely advise them properly that they've already served more than the amount of time in custody and more than the punishment they would receive for that offence to begin with. So of course that person might decide to plead guilty even if they have a reasonable defence, even if they haven't committed the offence, because they've already served their time in prison. You know, and, and we saw that with Veronica, the, these were offences that she was very unlikely to serve a term of imprisonment. She wasn't going to receive any time in jail, but she was still remanded for two weeks, which means that if she had gone to court at a later stage, well, why on earth wouldn't she plead guilty to those offences when she's already been held in custody for longer than she would have received? 
Post-2018, Victoria adopts these very tight bail laws. Is it out of step with other parts of Australia, Sarah Schwartz? It is. Um, Victoria's bail laws are widely considered to be the most punitive in Australia by many experts. But unfortunately, what we are seeing now as well is other jurisdictions copying Victoria. Um, So New South Wales has pushed to harden their bail laws last year. Queensland's introduced a range of new laws and policies that have made it harder for people to get bail, particularly children. And so what we're seeing is now Victoria leading the way in terms of mass incarceration. And for a state and government and Premier like Dan Andrews, who likes to say that he's leading the most progressive state in the country, the truth is that we are leading the way on regressive bail reform. And what are the figures over the last, say, decade in terms of incarceration levels in Victoria? We know that Victoria's spending on police and prisons has grown at double the rate of any other state over the last 10 years and that punitive bail laws are driving a lot of those costs and we know that we've seen multiple increases in the amounts of people being held in custody in Victoria over the past 10 years. Governments have had the answers to the problems identified in Veronica's case for over 30 years. Coroner Simon McGregor. The findings and recommendations of the Royal Commission were reasonable and implementable and they should have resulted in the type of widespread systematic changes that could have prevented the tragedy of Veronica's passing from occurring. Our criminal justice system must do better for people like Veronica and it should have done much better for her in this case. You're listening to The Law Report. I'm Damien Carrick and today we're looking at the coronial inquest into the death of Indigenous Victorian Veronica Nelson. My my guests are lawyer Sarah Schwartz and barrister Michael Stanton. What were the findings and recommendations made about the healthcare that Veronica Nelson received while in prison? The coroner found that prisons and Dame Phyllis Frost Centre took a punitive approach to withdrawal and pharmacotherapy, which meant that people who are are struggling with drug addiction and drug use have to engage in forced withdrawal, which is something that people don't have to engage with in the community. In the community, there are options to receive alternatives. Um, He found significant gaps in information sharing between Corrections Victoria staff and uh, the healthcare provider, the private healthcare provider, Correct Care Australasia. He found that there was a lack of communication between staff. You know, sometimes when Veronica was calling for help and stating that she had real medical concerns like vomiting, like dehydration, that information wasn't passed on to the medical staff in the prison. Those really significant gaps were causally related to her death. He also found that the healthcare providers themselves acted in a completely neglectful way. They treated Veronica in a cruel and inhumane way and that also they fell far below the standard of care that would be expected of a reasonable uh, medical practitioner. And that included failing to send her to hospital when she was exhibiting clear signs that she needed to go to hospital. The coroner also, he made various, I think you describe them as referrals? So fairly monumentally, the coroner has referred Correct Care Australasia, which is the private corporation who operates prison healthcare in all of Victoria's public prisons, 
to the Director of Public Prosecutions saying that there is a chance that they may have committed an indictable offence and there's a real chance. And he's also referred some of the health practitioners to the Australian Health Regulation Authority. I think importantly to note in all of this and just setting some of the context is that Victoria is the only state in Australia in which all prison healthcare is privatised in public prisons, which is now slowly changing. So the government has just made commitments that in the women's prisons, there's going to be a public provider, but still in the men's prisons, there's a private provider. And Michael Stanton, you have concerns about the quality and the mode of delivery of healthcare in prisons, but also about just what healthcare there is, because um, in women's prisons in Victoria, there are different offerings than in male prisons. There aren't the same level of resources and women prisoners are discriminated against. There's a bedrock principle in relation to prisoners' rights that prisoners are entitled to equivalent care they could receive in the community, and that obviously failed. We don't perhaps think about prisoners' rights and their conditions as much as we should, and astoundingly, Dame Phyllis, the women's prison, didn't have a sub-acute unit. And so what that meant was for decision-makers, either women prisoners are held in a very threadbare medical centre or they're transported to hospital and there's no middle ground. So, for example, an intravenous drip can't be inserted at the prison because that's a medical procedure, whereas many men's prisons have what are known as subacute units where if it was a male prisoner that was in the same situation as Veronica, one would imagine that he would have been transported at least to the subacute unit and given a more intensive care. And an intravenous strip might well have saved Veronica Nelson's life. Yes. It was that basic. Yes, and, and the, the discriminatory health services against women were found to be a contributing factor to her death. Sarah Schwartz... What does Uncle Percy Lovett want to see come out of this inquest? Fundamentally, he wants to see people like Veronica not being locked up, and that means changes to the bail laws, removal of the reverse onus tests, which led to Veronica being in jail, and for police to stop targeting Aboriginal people. Um, he wants to see an overhaul of the prison healthcare system away from private corporations towards the same quality of healthcare that we receive in the community, and for Aboriginal people to be provided with healthcare by Aboriginal health services, who are the only places who can provide culturally safe medical care and which Aboriginal people have access to in the community. And he also wants to see accountability for deaths in custody and addressing racism and stigma throughout the entire carceral system. I just want someone to be held accountable because when we get in trouble, we're all held accountable, you know. We've got to pay the price. All they had to do was their job, nothing else. That's all they had to do. We must be vigilant that there isn't a piecemeal response to this tragedy. Already at Liberty Victoria, we're concerned that some of the public comments indicate that there may be the intention for some narrow carve-out in the Bail Act to prevent something uh, like this happening again to someone in the specific circumstances of Veronica. Obviously, that's a good thing to stop that happening, but the expert evidence, and there was an expert panel during the inquest, the experts were unanimous that the Bail Act is not fit for purpose, that reverse owners' provisions are necessarily unfair in their operation, because at the end of the day, 
if there's not evidence that someone is an unacceptable risk of reoffending or flight, but they can't be released, then that's a disproportionate limitation and breach of their presumption of innocence and right to liberty. And there was no dissent from the experts that these reverse onus provisions have been a disaster. And in fact, the Victorian Law Reform Commission recommended in 2007 that there be a single test for bail, one of unacceptable risk. The Court of Appeals endorsed that approach, but yet captured by penal populism, there has been a punitive approach to bail. And our concern is that the government doesn't squib it and actually addresses the root and branch the systemic problems with the bail system. Sarah Schwartz, you're nodding. I completely agree with everything that Michael's just said. We absolutely cannot see just some tinkering around the edges with the Bail Act. And I think what Veronica's case really speaks to as well is the fact that prisons for so many people are not safe places. We saw a system of cruelty and neglect inflicted upon Veronica who just needed a basic level of help. That shows that there are just far too many being churned into the criminal system and there are far too many people in jail in Victoria. Uh, Sarah Schwartz, uh, Principal Lawyer with the Police and Accountability uh, Practice at the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service. Uh, she represented Uncle Percy Lovett, uh, Veronica Nelson's life partner at the coronial inquest into her death. And also Barrister Michael Stanton, President of Liberty Victoria. Uh, he also appeared as counsel for the Law and Advocacy Centre for Women at the inquest into Veronica Nelson. Thank you both for speaking to The Law Report. Thanks so much, Damien. Thank you. And if this causes any distress, there is help at Lifeline on 131114, and also 13 Yarn. That's 139276, 139276. That's a law report for this week. Thank you to ABC's 7.30 report and the PM program. Also, a big thank you to technical producer Matthew Crawford. I'm Damien Carrick. Talk to you next time with more law. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.